from the Australian Taxpayers Alliance, this is Taxed and Wasted, a podcast about tax, regulation, and waste. I'm your host, Emilio Garcia. Hello and welcome to Taxed and Wasted by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. I'm Emilio Garcia. In a little bit, we're going to talk to the ladies of Pantsuit Politics. Uh, They run an incredibly successful podcast in America. It is a conservative woman and a liberal woman who come together to talk about different issues. I have to apologize. I've been traveling, and the room that I found to interview them in was just very echoey on my end. I totally understand if you want to skip this one, but if uh, bad audio quality isn't very triggering for you, then check it out. That'll be at the end of the news review. But getting to the news review, uh, this is going to be a coronavirus-heavy episode, so I'm going to try to keep it brief. We don't really know much yet. We don't know enough to start uh, speaking too articulately on the coronavirus threat. But before we get to coronavirus, I want to talk about the ATO. Now, you may know that we uh, here at the ATA are not big fans of the ATO, but uh, the ATO has been added again demanding taxes that they're not entitled to. So people are receiving notices saying, you owe us X amount of money, usually over $1,000, and you have two weeks to pay us back. You have two weeks, and if you don't, then there'll, there'll be consequences. You'll get penalized in some way. And so people, naturally, with the time that they have, they don't really have a time to uh, to take it uh, up the ladder. They don't really have time to say, this is inappropriate, I don't want to pay this, or I, I actually shouldn't have to pay this. Uh, but then it turns out, pending an investigation, that a lot of those taxes, the taxes that the ATO said uh, Australians needed to pay them, they weren't entitled to it. They did. They, there was. They, they got it wrong. They sent out a letter saying you owe us this amount of money, and they didn't owe them that amount of money. The Australians receiving the money and many times paying from their wages that amount, they they didn't have to. They weren't legally required to. So clearly, uh, some reform is needed. Uh, you know, maybe shutting it down though. <laughs> that's probably not feasible. But definitely, um, definitely the ATO should be. Uh, rethought. Getting to coronavirus news. So SCOMO has announced a $22.9 billion economic stimulus package. Uh, it's, you know, there, there, there's a lot of, um, of different uh, layers to the plan. But what a lot of people are focusing on is the $750 cash payment to certain people. So this is mainly for pensioners and welfare recipients. Uh, there, there's also going to be um, some subsidies for some businesses, but m- more than anything, uh, the, the big story here is a cash handout. Now, we have to think about uh, Emily Dye, uh, our policy director, did a really good uh, deconstruction of uh, SCOMO stimulus package, but she brings up a great point. She says, we're going to give uh, pensioners people over 60. We're going to give them $750 cash to go and spend. We, we're encouraging them, as the government's encouraging them, not to put this in savings, but to go out and spend it. Here's the issue. There's a pandemic. There's a pandemic that 
affects people over 60 the hardest. We've seen this in the statistics. People who are severely uh, affected by coronavirus tend to be people who have underlying health issues or that are above the age of 60. And so it's odd to say to these people, the most vulnerable people, hey, there's this virus that we don't really know uh, what's going on with it. It's spreading a little bit faster than we once thought. Uh, it affects you uh, you guys over 60 more than anyone else. So we're going to give you $750. We want you to go out into the public, <laughs> you know, where there are crowds in shopping centers and spend this money. Really? Don't you think we should be encouraging them to stay home? Uh, clearly, I mean, obviously, the, the welfare recipients, they're, they're, uh, most of them are probably young, so they, they can go and spend the $750 uh, dollars without that much risk. But it, it, <laughs> just Emily Dye did point out uh, this, this issue, and I think, I think it's a great point. I think it's a fantastic point. Um, one of the things that I wanted to bring up is the stimulus package that um, the United States is bringing, which is just so different in kind from the one that Australia is putting out. And I think, you know, we should take note here. Donald Trump is basically easing uh, tax burdens on businesses and individuals. He's easing the the regulations around sick leave and making it easier for employers to provide sick leave to their uh, employees. He's basically making it so that employers don't have to pay uh, payroll tax for a little bit, which obviously makes it easier for employers to keep employees uh, there, even if the the production and the consumption goes down. And I think it's just, it's an interesting dichotomy to see just the, the, the difference between one approach, which is the government saying, we're just going to allow the economy to function without the heavy foot of government for a little bit. While in Australia, it's actually just spend, 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 throw money at the issue, that'll solve it. Okay, well, I mean, <laughs> you can you can decide which one is better. I would say, and I think it's the general um, consensus among people who are a little bit more libertarian-minded economically, would say that we shouldn't be throwing money at the issue. We should, in fact, be uh, encouraging businesses to function without uh, regulations from the government so that they can just do better uh, from their own resilience. So one of the things that I just wanted to finish on is, since we're talking about coronavirus and since that's anything anyone wants to talk about anymore, I don't think it's very wise that uh, to, to belittle the threat that coronavirus poses. I know that uh, a lot of the earlier information we had showed that, you know, the the death rates were lower than the flu and that it wasn't even expanding very quickly and so few people have died. And for a while, it was appropriate for people to say, meh, not that big a deal. This is totally fine. But I think the time for that type of blasé attitude has ended. I really do. In Australia, we've seen a 41% increase in the uh, amount of... Um, of coronavirus cases in the span of 24 hours. Now, that obviously has most more to do with uh, with Australia's ability to test people for coronavirus and people actually just getting the virus at that at that pace. But we still have to be cautious. I think I think it's very important not to want to belittle the issue. We've seen Italy basically shut down its country. <laughs> 
we've seen China completely uh, disrupt its 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 um, its economy and its supply lines for this. We're seeing Donald Trump today. Possibly this is uh, being filmed on a Friday, Saturday in Australia. I'm here in Mexico City. Uh, he's going to declare a state, of, a state of emergency, probably. Uh, there's travel bans in place it, it, here in Mexico. We're running out of medical equipment. And so while I don't think that panic is ever a good move and for the love of God, stop buying toilet paper. I really don't get where that came from. Uh, I don't think that it's uh, an appropriate or intelligent measure for people to say, eh, it's just a flu because it really isn't. Can I, can I just get back before we finish and we move on to the, to the pantsuit politics interview? It was really incredible to see the the, <laughs> the empty shelves for toilet paper in the toilet paper department in Kohl's and Woolies, while the rest of the shelves were stocked with long-life carbohydrates, canned foods, uh, freeze-dried meats. All of this was readily available, everything that you would need, things such as, uh, you know, toothpaste and certain, you know, basic commodities, just completely untouched. And yet, for some reason, Australia thought that the most important thing was to hoard, <laughs> to hoard toilet paper. All right. Uh, if any, anyone, by the way, who went out and uh, bought some toilet paper, can you please get in touch with us and let us know where you heard that you should buy toilet paper and what your motivation was? Um, thank you very much. We're going to move on now to the interview with the ladies of Pantsuit Politics. Once again, I have to apologize for the audio quality on my end. If you're particularly triggered by echoey, uh, not great recordings, this is one you can skip, but I suggest you don't because it's interesting. All right, I'll see you next time. All right, Beth and Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on Taxed and Wasted. How are you? Great, how are you? Oh, good. Oh, I'm so happy to hear it. I'm wonderful. Thank you for asking. So we don't have a ton of time, so I'll just jump into what I want to talk to you guys about. The Australian Taxpayers Alliance is nonpartisan, which means that we really like to uh, affiliate and work with whoever wants to forward our agenda as we see it um, as we see it is best for Australia. And so I was really interested to see that you are both uh, creating a podcast or have created a very popular podcast that really shows both sides of politics. So. You know, it's, it's a bipartisan podcast. And I don't want to throw uh, gasoline on a fire or anything, but I'd like to ask you both why you think your side is the proper one to, to be on as opposed to the other. So uh, one of you is a liberal, the other one is a conservative. Why, uh, why do you think your side is better than the other? I don't know if it's that we think our sides are better than the other. We just have different approaches and our fundamental value is that both sides belong at the table. So we always say, when it comes to the federal government, Beth is the brakes and I'm the gas. I just think if we can bring the power of the federal government to a problem, why wouldn't we? Um, and mm -hmm. she's always the one um, sort of advising, hey, wait, that doesn't always turn out great. Whereas right. when it comes to the private market, I'm the one who's like, I don't want the private market to just show up and solve all our problems. That doesn't always turn out great either. But the, pro the thing about gas and brakes is that you need both to drive a car. It doesn't work if one person's foot is um, all the way on the gas and all the way on the brakes at the same time. That's just not, that's not how you go anywhere. And that's sort of what hap that's happening in American politics right now is that you have um, 
both sides refusing to give anything. And so there, there's all gas and all brakes <laughs> about every issue with um, neither side wanting to let their foot up off the pedal at all. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah, I would say that it's hard to know what both sides means in American politics in 2020. The complexion of things has changed significantly since we started the podcast. And mm. I'm not sure that my perspective is represented well by either of our major parties at this point. I've always considered myself conservative because I think that we should solve a problem as close to the problem as possible. And so for me, that means an emphasis on, yes, businesses bringing their expertise to problems, but also local communities, county governments, state governments, looking at our giant federal government as a problem solver of last resort. And that's just not approach an approach that either party in the United States is reflecting very well right now. But I completely agree with Sarah that there are certainly constraints on my perspective and limitations to the effectiveness of that strategy. And so that that balancing impact where you have one party focused on what are the benefits of federal government as problem solver versus the limitations um, is the is the recipe for the most effective form of government governance. And I think its absence is why we feel so frustrated with our Congress and all of our institutions right now in the United States. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And I think it's uh, no secret that uh, both parties have gotten have gotten more uh, ingrained in their beliefs. Bipartisanship has definitely uh, gone down, and it is kind of a winner takes all situation. But on this uh, topic of bipartisanship and having both sides of the table, I want to ask what you think on this issue, which is how much should each side be willing to give up in the name of stability? In other words. We will need to compromise in order to work together because we both, you know, we all have our different uh, opinions. So, what? Uh, how much can you give up saying? Well, at least I'm really uh, more or less achieving what I want to. And where is the line where you'll say, "Well, I'll go no further than that." You know, I think it's a tough question because just. I think you are framing it exactly as we frame it often, which is I must be giving something up when sometimes it's not even that we're giving something up as much as we are accepting the world as it is. Um, a lot of problems that I feel the pressure of Sarah's kind of perspective on um, are new problems. When I think about climate change, it's really difficult to say, well, let us hunker down in our local communities and deal with climate change. That's the mm. world dealing us a new situation that's probably going to require a different kind of approach. Um, at the same time, you know, we have in America built some federal programs that I would not have initially signed on for. You know, I, I don't think I would have voted in favor of Social Security or um, Medicare when they were when they were formed. But mm. lots of Americans rely on those programs. And so is it giving up something for me to have an interest in stabilizing those programs, keeping them solvent, keeping them functioning? I don't really think of it that way as much as just meeting reality where we are. Okay. And Sarah, did you have, um, did you have a, a point, a perspective on this? No, I mean, I think that Beth really nailed it, that the issue is, um, not that it, it, it's this false binary that, um, everything is, um, a scarcity sort of approach that in order, and it's the, and it's the winner take, you, you, you know, you mentioned this too. It's the winner take all, um, 
composition of our elections that carries through into our governance. Just because we have winner-take-all elections and somebody has to win in order for somebody else to lose does not mean that's the case in every single legislative or policy issue. And I think kind of trying to keep our focus on that instead of um, letting the, the partisanship of elections infect every single conversation we have. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And um, although I, I really wish that that was, you know, I am in Australia currently, but uh, I... I am an American, and it is sad to see the polarization within uh, within our parties and with our political class uh, have uh, it just go so so far. But I do wonder, since yeah, we have the ideal that things should be a little bit more uh, give and take within our politics. But the situation on the ground currently is that I mean, both sides are going for everything, and they they're having a hard time agreeing on anything, and so. If you do think that both sides should be at the table, that there should be a give and take, that you uh, don't want to don't want to necessarily look at it as a winner takes all takes all uh, issue, how how does that work within a situation such as this, which is to say, you as a person, let's say on the right, think that the left stands against everything that you want to achieve and for a lot of things that you oppose, and the similar thing would, would apply to the left. So how can you really work civilly with someone that opposes really everything that you want to achieve? Well, I would start from a lens of saying, is it really everything? Can I be a little bit more honest about it than that? And if I can't, yeah. then how can I at least prioritize? Because if I have decided that the stakes are as high as humanly possible about everything from climate change to tax policy to uh, symbolic resolutions, the kinds of things that we pass all the time in Congress that don't mean a whole lot, but that pronounce something about how we view the world, um, I'm not going to get anywhere. So can I rank my issues? Can I at least say, here's what I think is most important. Maybe if I'm on the right, that's mm -hmm. some kind mm -hmm. of free market economy, right? And so I've decided... I will hear you left when you say that healthcare prices are too high, that not enough people are insured. Um, and I will also say that I do not think the government taking control of the delivery of healthcare services is appropriate. That's a hard line for me. So how can mm. we work together on finding a way to stabilize prices, lower prices, make health insurance more accessible and affordable? Um, while maintaining a private system around healthcare. But instead, right now we're having a conversation where we have like problem identification from one party and problem denial from the other party. Um, the, the right would emphasize problems around religious liberty. The left would say those problems are non-existent. It's all bigotry. The, the left would say we have a, a healthcare crisis. The right would say, uh, not really, you know, and, and the same That's thing with true. climate. So I think instead of, um, just outright denying the version of reality where we're starting, prioritizing what really matters to you around each issue could help us meet each other somewhere where there might be some fruitful uh, decision-making or creation solution or solution right. creation. Absolutely. Well, and I think that part of the issue in the way um, people approach it as if, you know, this is, this is fundamental. I can't give an inch is because we're asking partisan politics to, to encompass the entirety of our identity and that sort of team identification or that tribe or whatever you want to call it is supposed to hold all our values, all our experiences, all our identity. And it's not built for that. 
Um, mm. And when we approach it that way and we right, we treat every issue as if it is the um, end of the world and the stakes are so high, then we can justify all sort of um, terrible behavior to, in the sure. way we treat each other, terrible policy outcomes. And I mean, that's what you see play out over and over again in American politics. Yeah, definitely. And uh, on the subject of American politics, bringing it, obviously, uh, the, the elections are getting more and more heated, uh, even though it's still hundreds of days away, the election is. Uh, what do you think the current candidates, uh, including Donald Trump, are doing right? And what do you think that they are doing wrong? Um, I mean, I think that it depends on um, how you define right or wrong. I mean, if we're talking about mm -hmm. what are they doing right to further um, their success as a candidate, I think that uh, Joe Biden is doing a lot right as far as um, gathering endorsements, um, using the momentum to the best of his ability to unify the center to center left in the Democratic Party. Um, mm -hmm. I think Bernie Sanders is doing a lot right as far as energizing and um, moving the party itself further to the left. And, mm. um, you know, as Donald Trump, um, I think the Republican Party um, under his leadership has done a lot right as far as um, taking more advantage of technology in ways that they weren't doing in previous cycles and um, gathering big um, big amounts of information and data to create these voter files that I think any party in the 21st century is going to need to be successful. And you see them doing that in ways they weren't before Donald Trump. Um, so I think there's something um, as far as electoral success you can see on um, in any of the candidates. As far as what I think um, right, as far as like good for the American um, political environment, I don't know. That would be a tougher question to answer. Yeah. That's I mean, I think... I think I'm sorry. Hmm. No, I was, just, I was saying, um, yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, electorally and maybe strategically, that's an interesting question. But uh, when you're talking about uh, how this benefits the American people or the American uh, political system, uh, how, how do you think uh, both sides are, are currently doing? Well, I was going to add to Sarah's answer that I think hmm. you see three really different visions for what the president does what the role of the presidency is supposed to be with these candidates. And I think that's a segue perhaps to talking about what you're asking substantively, what's good for the country here. I think in Senator Sanders' campaign, there is something important for the country in terms of honest reflection about who is being served by the American economy and who isn't. Um, who's being served at the expense of others in the United States and um, what can we learn about ourselves from that honest critique? I think Joe Biden's campaign is serving the country through asking us to take a hard look at our values. You know, Biden started his campaign by talking about what happened in Charlottesville and, and has really said to America, you know, we are not supposed to be a racist country. We are not supposed to be a country that turns away immigrants. We are uh, we are a welcoming nation. We're better than this, you know, is kind of the, the Biden message. And I think that's a good one that America needs right now. I think that Trump views himself and, and the role of the president as um, kind of appealing to the other shoulder of Americans instead of that critique or that sense of let's get it together. You know, Trump wants to say America's amazing and you should feel amazing about being an American and America should be at the top of every trade deal and the top of every world order. Um, and so kind of a, 
boosting the American ego. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, whether I love this or not, you see a lot of people in America who were hungry for that kind of message that there is something special about being an American. I think because we've lived through so much problem identification over the past decade, um, there are folks who wanted to hear somebody kind of um, give them that pep talk and that that and that's what Trump delivers for a lot of people in this country. Yeah, certainly. Uh, well, I, I find this incredibly interesting and I really want to thank you both for taking the time. And since we are reaching the end of our time, I just wanted to ask you both a quick question. Feel free to not uh, to not answer this fully, but uh, I would find it interesting. Who uh, who are you supporting? From, from the candidates. Do you guys know who you're voting for yet? Well, I, I plan to vote for Joe Biden. It will be the first time I voted for a Democrat in a national election. Um, to me, Trump has just taken us in a direction in terms of our national ethos that I think is unhealthy. And I think Biden strikes a good compromise between being um, critical about areas where America needs to do better, but also I'm hopeful and optimistic about what we can do well. And I'm encouraged by all of the support lining up behind Biden in terms of just building a really competent administration again. So there's I know that he is to my left on many issues, but I think that he represents a a good compromise that we need at this particular moment in our history. Okay. Cosign. All right, Everything perfect. she just said, I'll, except for the first time I'll be voting for a Democrat. I've only ever voted for Democrats. <laughs> okay, well, I, uh, I love it. Hey, thank you so much again for taking the time to talk to me. I've really enjoyed it. I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it as well. And uh, I'll hope to talk to you soon. Thank you All for right, having thank us. Thank you.